still have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If not, you need to turn there. This pastor has said I'll be preaching this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and particularly we'll be looking at the verses 5 through 9. We've already had the earlier paragraph. It's very valuable to have it in our minds, but I'm just going to read verses 5 through 9. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, as is my custom. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, so that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Once again, let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word as we uh, consider it this morning. Our Father, how conscious we are of what this text says. That though one man should plant the seed and another man should water the seed, that you, the living God, are the one who causes the increase. And we do ask now, our Lord, as I water the seed that has been planted, it has been planted here for many years, we ask that you, the living God, would give the increase. Help me, Lord, as I seek to open the word of God. Keep me faithful to you. Help me to declare plainly and clearly what your word says. And then grant, our God, that the grace of God may rest upon us all. And we may know your ministry of causing life and growth to the word of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you think about this uh, problem that Paul is dealing with at Corinth, you might be tempted to think, well, what's the big deal here? What is this problem that Paul is addressing? We know that he is addressing the divisions he had brought up in chapter 1. All the way back in chapter 1, Paul had said that there were divisions Divisions that centered around names. Uh, divisions about Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Christ. Well, the divisions were themselves Paul's great concern. The, the men were not uh, Paul's concern in one sense. Uh, the, the, uh, the first three names were useful ministers. Paul, with his wide ministry, to many, many places where he preached the gospel. And Apollos, a man mighty in the scriptures, who had been taught the way of God more perfectly by uh, Priscilla and Aquila, as you remember, 
Paul wasn't Paul wasn't worried about in one sense about Apollos and and Cephas. It, it might seem strange. Evidently, the apostle Peter had some contacts in the church at Corinth and had had some kind of ministry. Uh, we're not told directly, even in the book of Acts, what that was, but you'll you'll find it. Uh, Paul mentions Cephas's name, the name Cephas, which was uh, the uh, the, the uh, title Christ had given him. Uh, Cephas is, uh, well, that's another name for Peter. And he's mentioned by the name of Cephas. Paul doesn't mention him as, as Peter at all. He does in the book of Galatians, but not here in Corinthians. He names him consistently Cephas. And, uh, and then there's, of course, the person Christ. Uh, a division involving our Lord Jesus Christ is very strange. And in order that you might be clear on this, the idea was floated in Corinth that some of the church were dividing themselves using the name of Christ. And that ought to take make us uh, realize that something is very wrong. They, they would, the person who said, I am of Christ, he, he was trying to be hyper-spiritual, you know? So every time, every once in a while, you find people who try to say things and uh, they try to sound very spiritual. So some people are saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Paulus, and I am of Cephas, and that, of course, is wrong. And someone was saying, well, you're, you have nothing to do with Christ. I'm, I'm the one who's really spiritual, and I, I am of Christ. Well, in one sense, it's true, I am of Christ, but not in the way that this man meant it. These people meant it. No Christian should suggest that they have a unique relationship with Christ that excludes other Christians. Some of these people, like I said, were acquainted with Peter. So Peter's name is mentioned. And now in the text, as we proceed on, we find that Paul, for the time being, drops Cephas. He's not concerned about Cephas. He, he comes now and he centers on his ministry and Apollos' ministry. And that's because those men had a higher profile ministries at Corinth. Paul, of course, founded the church and he was continually working in the church. He was visiting the church. And Apollos had an important ministry to the church as well. They were two men who had extensive ministries at Corinth. And the problem was, now, here's the problem. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. It is a big deal. The Corinthian Christians had very defective views of these ministers. They had the wrong view of these ministers. And Paul said it's important. If you're ever going to be united, if you're ever going to become of one mind and have a, a united testimony of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you need to straighten out these crooked ideas about your ministers and their role. Their attachment to ministers was immature. It was immature. It was babyish. Uh, and it was also sinful because it involved jealousy and strife. It's not, that's not the way the church is supposed to be, where the people of God are fractured. And where they're competing with one another in the name of some 
some personality. Even a good man, a good man will not desire that the people of God will have a jealous attachment to him. So today our text is verses 5 through 9, and Paul provides his remedy for the sinful preoccupation with men. And the remedy involves a proper perspective about the relationship between God and his appointed ministers and their labors. And so what Paul does, I'm dividing my treatments of the text in three parts. Part number one is identities. Identities. That's verse 5. Paul speaks about the identities of these men. Secondly, his evaluations in verses 6 and 7. And finally, cautions in verses 8 and 9. So the, the, the outline is really easy. One word outlines this morning. Identities, evaluations, cautions. And if I were really good, I would do what Pastor Carlson does and they'd all begin with the same letter. But I'm not, uh, that's not my skill. That's his skill, not mine. So first of all, Paul starts in verse 5 with identities, identities, basic identities. Notice how he puts it. What then is Apollos? I know, I know the King James has who then is Apollos. It's not bad. Uh, who then is Apollos? Who is Paul? But actually, actually in the Greek, it's it's a it's a neuter. That's why it's translated what in this particular translation. I'm not going to make a big deal of it. But what then is Paul? What then is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Again, Paul wants them to have a proper understanding of who these men are whom the Corinthians had made such a fuss over. The divisive attitude toward ministers implied an exaltation of them. When somebody says, you know, I can do without Apollos, which is a wrong, a wrong mindset, right? If we're in the same church... Nobody can say to somebody else, I have no need of you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in this very letter later on, he'll, he'll say that the weaker parts are more needful. So uh, it's, it's wrong. When you take one man and you say, I follow this man. I've known Christians like this. And I don't want to be unkind. But I know immature Man-centered Christians who do just this kind of thing. It's very dangerous. It's dangerous for the individual and it's dangerous for the church. So Paul is trying to, in banking we call it, in sales, level set. Let's, let's get it straight. Let's put things in their right perspective. What therefore is Paul or Apollos? It's as if you said, uh, you align yourselves with Paul or Apollos? What do you think I am? He says, I'm going to tell you who I really am. They were only servants, ministers, even though they were the means by which saving grace came to them. And you see the way Paul says this. He actually points to the conversion 
of these Corinthian Christians, and they were lining up based upon their conversion. That's why early in the God, in the in the book, Paul says, uh, "I thank God that I baptized none of you." A few exceptions to that, but he says, "I didn't baptize you, lest you be said said you were baptized in the name of me, Paul." Paul says that's wrong. You're misunderstanding. You're not viewing your ministers in a proper way. They are servants, ministers, even though they were the means by which saving grace. And see how he, he makes that the issue. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. He's saying you, you think it the wrong way about this matter. You say, okay, I heard you preach. It was a wonderful sermon on October 28th. In 19, uh, 1995, and I came to faith in Christ. And so now you're, you're my man, you know. You're the guy, because you were the one. Well, Paul says, no, you're wrong. You're wrong, actually. That's not the way to view it. Yes, be thankful for the people God uses to bring the gospel to you, who preach Christ to you, who remind you that there's forgiveness of sins only through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's the one who came down to such a world as this. The stirring words of the hymn. He came down to such a world as this. And he's the one who obeyed the law perfectly. He's the one who died upon the cross. He's the one who sent the Holy Spirit into your heart. He's the one who blessed the word of God to your soul. I'll pause for a second and ask you this question. Is that the way you think? Do you think of your salvation as coming through some minister and not through Christ? Are you separating your salvation from Christ and diverting it to some man or messenger? Paul doesn't want you to think that way. Now, if I may say so, the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to think that way either. Sometimes uh, some Christians can't think of a date and time when they were saved. I know a lot of evangelicals say you got to have the date, the, the, the day and the hour. No, you don't. It was a lady who shook up my views about conversion because she was saved at a very early age. And she told me, I never knew a time when I didn't love Jesus. That shakes things up, doesn't it? You know, she, she couldn't nail it down to a person, but she knew that Jesus had saved her. He knew that he had transformed her. She knew that she was born again. She just didn't know the day and the hour. I happen to know. I know. I know that day when the Lord Jesus Christ laid hold of me and changed me. I'm not promoting the minister for the simple reason that although he preached the gospel that day and I believe the gospel that day, I don't believe he was even converted. That's not so strange. You say, huh, strange. No, God sometimes uses unsaved people to bring the gospel to those whom he wants to save. God does that sometimes. And what Paul wants to say in verse 5, what Paul is trying to tell us again is you need to look. Yes, esteem ministers, faithful ministers, value for them, pray for them, realize 
that tremendous weight was upon them. But remember where your salvation came from. Servants through whom you believed, yes, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And that's, you see, part of the lines of the division in Corinth. They fell primarily along the lines of the teachers through whom people were brought to Christ. I imagine you would understand how pastors and preachers feel when they find out that someone was saved under their ministry. It brings joy to the angels in heaven, joy to the one who sits up on the throne, and joy to faithful servants who love men's souls. Yes, it is a great encouragement. It's worthy to be rejoiced of. But even the, even the, the minister, not, not, no pastor take, understands this and he believes this. They, they, the real thing is the opportunities that God gives. This is an interesting sidelight in the life of the great prophet John the Baptist. He was uh, baptizing, and then came the time, you know, Jesus came along and started preaching, and his disciples were baptizing people who were converted under his ministry, and uh, John's disciples said, Lord, uh, uh, teacher, uh, Jesus is baptizing people, a lot of people going to Jesus. And John the Baptist made this astute observation. No man can receive anything unless it is given him of God. Conversions come from God. Attachments are not altogether wrong. To love a faithful minister is right. To value his ministry is right. But still, John the Baptist says, you know how big your ministry is going to be? It's going to be as big as God lets it, no bigger. No man can receive anything unless it is given him of God. And this is what Paul reflects in verse 5. They are ministers through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave, and the word opportunity is supplied by the translators, gave to each one. I didn't expect a conversation with Pastor Tate this morning and some of the brethren uh, because on that day the 31st when you're having some special services here my granddaughter is being baptized so I have a prior commitment You may wonder, well, this is wonderful. My daughter, my daughter is converted. Her husband is converted. They were converted at the same time. And then my granddaughter, Leticia R.C., was converted much later. Now she's been interviewed for church membership, and she'll be baptized on the 31st. How did that happen? It's not because of me. It's not. Understand it. Oh, did I have a part? Yeah, I hope so. I, I visited that home many times, read the Bible. We had devotions together. We sang together. We prayed together. 
I talked to them. I talked to them many times about various things. But it's not because of me. I didn't save my granddaughter. She's not being baptized because she was my granddaughter or even the daughter of a Christian member of the church. No. God gave the increase. Paul, this is fundamental to a right view of ministers and conversion. When we pray for God to expand his kingdom, it's very important. Now, I'm not assuming that you don't know what I'm saying. Maybe, maybe all of you can visit this. I just want to nail, bend the nail over and reinforce when you pray. Yes, pray for these servants whom God will use. Who's ever going out on the street handing out tracts, pray for them. Whoever is going to a nursing home and preaching, pray for them. Whoever is coming here to preach to you, pray for them. And appreciate it. Yes, appreciate it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to preach the gospel. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of prayer and diligence to make the gospel clear. But you see, any man worth his salt, as we say, understands it's not me. God gives. God gives it. God does the work, you see. And we, what are we? Paul says, what is Paul? What is Apollos? Well, they have, they have a function, you see. He, yeah, Paul's an apostle. Christ called him to this. Apollos is a gifted man uh, and a co-laborer, yes. And they were ministers. Now, that's what some of the translators have. The word actually is diakonos. Isn't that interesting? That when Paul wants to clear up the function of Paul and Apollos, the place of Paul and Apollos, their role in this whole matter, he gives them a more humble name than he could. Paul could have said, I'm an apostle. Apollos is a mighty man in the scriptures. They're models. They're preachers. That's not what he says. He says they're deacons. That's what he says. Now, you have to understand that that family of words that Paul uses is a, has a, a, a certain flexibility. It's a family of words that refers to table servants. And that's how you remember how the deacons were first formed in Acts, uh, what is that, Acts 6? Acts 7? He says there's a problem with the serving of tables and the poor widows who were... Uh, not Hebrew-speaking widows. They were Greek-speaking widows. They were being neglected in the table serving. And so they appointed table servants. It's the first deacons. Their first job was to make sure that everybody gets fed properly who needs to be fed at these uh, merciful dinners for widows. And they were called deacons as table servants. And these are these people appointed by their duties by the masters, 
but they had a more intimate personal relationship with their masters, their employers, the deacons, the table servers. And of course, you would be more concerned about who was serving you food at your table than the person who's fixing your fence out in the, uh, out in the yard. The person who's fixing, fixing the tent was also a servant. But that word table servant originally referred to those who <laughs> served in that more intimate way. And you would be concerned, you know, about the person who's feeding you food. But the word also refers to someone who appoints, who performs any other service for the benefit of another. Look over it for a quick glance at Matthew 25, 44. Matthew 25, 44. This is the word deacon used in a um, verb form. Deacon is a noun, but to deacon, to serve, is a verb. So uh, this is what happens in heaven when Jesus is commending his people and um, condemning his enemies. Verse 44, they themselves will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not take care of you? That, that word, take care, that's, that's the verb form of deacon. We didn't deacon you, you see. We didn't help you in these various needs. So it's a wide range, a wide range of services done. And it's a wide range of services done in the churches. The deacon, of course, is the deacon. But so, the office of an apostle is a deacon-like service. When Peter stands up in the upper room before the day of Pentecost, he says that uh, Judas Iscariot, he went his way, and so they need to appoint another man for this office, this deaconship. And the phrase deacon sometimes referred to an office in the church. Not which office, but some office. That's how Peter uses it in Acts 1, 17, 25. Peter, uh, Paul now chooses this word again for these two men. Who is, what is Paul? What is Apollos? Well, they are servants. They are deacons through whom you believe. He chooses this word because uh it conveys what the Corinthians need to keep in mind about himself, Paul, and Apollos, or any other ministry. Minister. They are not lords. They are servants. They perform an official function, but only by the appointment of their master. Their master. And you have to, you have to think biblically in terms of just leadership in the church. Jesus made this statement that has weighed heavily on my mind for many years now in John 10, when he says, he who enters by the fold in the doorway is the shepherd of the sheep, but he who climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. There are lots of people who want to be leaders. They want an office. They want a name. They want a title. And Jesus says there's only one way to do it. 
You go through the door, God's appointed way, or you don't go at all. When you see somebody climbing over the fence, obvious. I have a door, front door and back door and side door. I'm, I'm concerned about someone trying to come through the windows, right? You don't, you don't try and get in your way. Jesus says, watch out for people who are going in the wrong way. There's only one reason why they're not coming through the door. Thieves and robbers. And I'll just say what I've said many times. Every time I'm asked to go preach somewhere, an email goes out to my pastors, all of them, all five of them. So-and-so has asked me to come and preach. I would like to do it. Do I have your go-ahead? Until they say, go ahead, you may go. I don't go. Because I'm a man under authority. I'm not climbing up some other way to get some. I love preaching, you know me. I'm not going. I'm not doing it. Until the men in charge, who are in charge under Christ, because when my pastors say no, you know what I, th I conclude? Jesus is saying no. And when my pastors say go, hey, I'm, I'm good with that. Because I know that they are put in charge by the Lord Jesus over me. Some people not, might not be too comfortable with that. I'm very comfortable with that. So I'm not doing my own thing. It's being done properly, orderly. And this is what Paul is trying to tell these Corinthian Christians. You have a wrong understanding, a wrong view of your ministers when you're saying, I'm this, this is my guy. No, Jesus is your guy, if I could put it that way, right? They, Paul and Apollos, they perform an official function at the appointment of the masters. Even the conversions are to be thought of this way because God gives conversions. Now, the language is a little bit vague. It's not as specific. You might want, you might wish that Paul had written a couple more verses in there describing how particularly God does this, but he doesn't. Because the, the, the point is, the point is again, that God's the one who does that. He appoints who will preach where and when. Paul and Apollos came and went, right? Paul was there at the beginning. He did some. He left. Apollos was there. They came and went. The Lord Jesus actually appoints who will be present to hear those who speak. And when he grants the success, he's the one who grants it wherever it is experienced. We have an example of Lydia in Acts 16, 14, whose heart the Lord opened to give heed to the things spoken by Paul. So, God's, that, God's, God's in charge. God's the one who's directing it all. And the Corinthians were forgetting this. It was God's determination. It was not a pulse's style. Not Paul's style. God uses those things. I get it. Human factors are important, but they are not the determining factor for conversions. But God is. Well, that's verse 5. Identities. 
basic identities. You see that Paul nails down three identities. What is Paul? Servant. What is Apollos? Servant. And who's in charge? Who's making it work? Who's granting conversions? God is. And many implications of this. We need to make sure that we're honoring God in the way we speak conversions. It has to be God's way. It has to be God's method. There are a lot of churches where people are very confused. You know what some people think? Some people think that people are converted because of the music. No, 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 it's not so. The Holy Spirit comes and he takes the messages, the messages in the word of God that is read, the messages in the songs that we sing. That's why we need, and I, I know this, I, I, I've been here for years. I know, I know that some of the changes that have gone on here at City View Baptist Church. The reason why you're singing certain hymns and not certain other things that you used to sing, and perhaps you even liked and perhaps you even missed, the reason is because the message of the gospel, the message of the word of God, ought to be thoroughly in the hymns that we sing. And I'm grateful that they are. I have to do it God's way. Because God's the one who's going to grant conversions. It's not hard to manipulate people to make conversions, but they're not saved. You see? got to honor God in the way we do it. Well, let me press on. Verse 5 is identities. Paul, Apollos, and the one who is causing the increase. Number 2, evaluations. Verses 6 and 7. Evaluations. It grows right out of the identities. This is just a continuation of the same thing, but it's evaluations. And this is what Paul says. I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, what does that mean? So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. It's quite a humiliating statement. And nothing, and not anything, but God who causes the growth. Paul speaks of the service in terms of Palestinian culture. This is what Paul's doing here. He's describing the role of tenant farmers. But this was very common in the first century. It's described in other places like Matthew 21. Now, for time's sake, I won't turn you there, but if you want to jot it down, Matthew 21, 33 and following describes tenant farmers. Jesus uses it as a parable, right? A couple of times. It was found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. It's found in the Lord, in, in the words of the Apostle Paul, he says a man had a, had a field and he set it up and he rented it out to tenant farmers. And they're the ones who came and planted and watered and then at the right time the owner of the vineyard sends a message and says, give me some of the produce that has been produced. He paid the tenant farmers to care for his, his property. Again, it helps make the spiritual realities clear because it was so common in the day, everybody knew about this. The ideas 
which are a part of this, is this. Number one, that the church is a living thing. The church is a living thing. The church is God's kingdom, and it's a living thing. That's why God says you are God's field. That's why he uses the idea of tenant farming. That's why he says, I planted, Apollos watered. That's tenant farming. And it shows that the kingdom of God is a living thing. It's also a kingdom. It's also a building. But when Paul wants to emphasize the growth of the, of the church, he uses field. Secondly, the church is under the authority of men appointed to manage it by a higher authority. That's the message of tenant farming. The tenant farmers go in there and they do their work, but it's under the authority of the master who owns it. And the master is Jesus. And then uh, the third part of it, the church is a living thing. The church is under the, is, uh, under the authority of men appointed to manage it by high authority. And then thirdly, that the one for whom it is done, everything is done, is not apparent to those who are seeing it done. Because the master is not on sight. He's someplace else. He's got these people to do the work. But the one for whom it is done is not on site. Now God is with his church. He is on site. But how come then the Corinthian trouble, Corinthian Christians had so much trouble seeing that? Because what we see with our own eyes is generally all that we think about. That's what we think about. And the church at Corinth had forgotten for whom all, all of this is being done. That's why Paul has to keep on going, coming back to them and saying, look, remember, who are we? Yeah, we are the ones doing this work. It's all being done for someone else. And it's all being made effective by someone else. And so Paul, uh, he, gives it, he gives it more detail by talking about the uh, activities of each one. His, his uh, evaluation is about the activities of each one Paul planted. So in tenant farming, somebody's got to start, right? Somebody's got to plant the seeds. Somebody's got to do the setup work. And Paul was the means of beginning the church. And then somebody to water. Now sometimes the same guy starts the church and maintains the church. And the tenant farming, maybe the same guy sets up the seats and does all the planting and does all the watering. He's there the rest of his life serving the master. But in this case, you had two different men. Paul began the church. Apollos watered. He was not the original worker. Just like tenant farms, men might work there for a while. And then for various reasons would not complete the work. Apollos took over and watered what Paul had planted. As in plant life, though, God's the one who causes the resulting growth. It's true in farming, too. I, I like to garden. This year my garden has gone 
uh, to uh, to see because <laughs> we spent a lot of time doing other things. But even when you're working hard in gardening or farming, you know that you might not get the crop you were hoping for, right? You might not, you might not do so well. Why? Because God causes the growth. That's true in farming. That's true in gardening. God's the one. So you have the whole process of germination and development of the plant and with its powers for fruit bearing, God causes it at every stage. The farmer can't guarantee himself a good crop. He might do everything right, but only God can accomplish the growth. And so in the church, the same thing is true. God causes the increase. For this reason, Paul makes his evaluation. And it can't be contradicted. Who's the important one in the process? Who is the one without whom you have nothing? It is God. Without him, there is no growth. This is true in families as well. Paul, I'm sorry, uh, David in Psalm 127 says... Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. As a father, I sat down with my children every day. We prayed at every meal. Maybe, maybe my wife will tell me she's a good corrector. She, when I find when I make mistakes in preaching, she tells me, and I'm thankful. So, but uh, I think we prayed all the time. I don't think we ever sat down to a meal and didn't pray for the twenty plus years that we raised our children. We didn't read the Bible every day. We should have. We aimed to. We read very often. We made. We made as good use of the Lord's Day as we could. My children knew. And my parents knew. Our families knew. Where are Frank and June going to be on Sunday? We're going to be at church. For a while I've been a pastor. Many times I've supplied pulpits. But when I wasn't, you know where I was going to be. My, my children said, well, Dad, you know, it's kind of unfair sometimes. You have to be there. You have to preach. You have to work. But there are some people who think that they don't have to be there. That was disappointing to my children, you know. It was. It's a great effect. When the man of God is pouring out his life into the ministry, some people think it's not important to be there. Pastor Tate said this morning, you know, I have to be here. Are you going to be here? I want to know. I get it. I get it. But again, God causes the growth. God, God, and, and what does God bless? Let me, let me ask this question to you. Now, you know, answer in your mind. But you know who, you know, you know what God blesses. 
You know how God causes the increase? Paul plants of harvest waters. Now, if you're not where the where the seed is being planted, and if you're not where the water is being poured, are you going to increase? Are you going to be saved? If the Lord Jesus Christ is presented in all of his glory, the wonders of the work that he has done being sung and proclaimed by someone whom Christ has appointed to proclaim it, are you not here? What do you think is going to happen? If the seed was planted and you're not being watered, it's going to shrivel. You say, I, I want to be saved. Well, you better be where the seed is being planted and the seed is being watered because that's where God's going to increase. That's the people who are going to be under the saving grace of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I understand there are providential hindrances where you can't be. But you need to think about this. So, Paul says, now, Paul is nothing, not anything. Apostles, not anything. Why bother with them? Why can't they? They can't make the. It can't make the increase. Why bother with them? Well, again, that's what John the Baptist says. The Lord, the Lord appoints. The Lord gives opportunities, and the Lord blesses the increase. Let me, let me move to my third point. We have the basic identities. The identities in verse five. The evaluation now in verses six and seven, and the cautions. Paul's cautions in verses eight and nine. He makes some cautions. He says. He speaks about the unity of the workers at the beginning of verse 8. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. Well, they're not the same person, but they are united. And that's why the divisions didn't make sense. That's why these schisms and divisions among the people didn't make any sense, because these two men were doing the same work. Yes, one was involved in planting more, one was involved in watering more, both by the word of God, but they were one, you say, united. Not numerically united, but they were both united in their purpose and their attitude. There's no real difference between them. Style, yes. I would have to work very hard to sound like Pastor Tate. You know, because I, I'm, the, the, the words that begin with T-H-R, I just pronounce differently than Pastor Davies. But we're one, you say. Preaching the same gospel with the same aims for the good of souls and for the increase of the church. That's why, that's why the Corinthian thing was such a, a mystery in one sense. It was the devil's work because there was no real difference, no substantial difference between Paul and Apollos. The brethren had blown up minor differences in style and made parties, but there was no difference. So that's the first thing Paul says, they're one. They're one in aim and purpose and method. Secondly, their dignity, the dignity of these men. <laughs> the dignity of these men is that they receive a reward. Isn't that what Paul says? 
Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's their dignity. The Lord Jesus Christ sees his servants. He gives them tasks. They go and they fulfill them. And he says, I'm going to reward my servants. Now, we don't deserve rewards in one sense, do we? No, we're sinful men. We ought to be doing it, right? It's like the, like the man uh, who... Uh, who says, I'm an unprofitable servant. I've only done what's required of me. That's what I do. Yes, that's what we do. But the Lord sees that his servants should be rewarded. The Corinthians might think that ministers could be entirely disregarded. Some people think that way about ministers. I know it. But the Lord counts his, his, his deacons, his servants... Worthy of a reward. And he tells us about the measure of the rewards. Let me tell you something about this. That the measure of rewards is not according to results. In the world, uh, rewards are given by results. You take a man who's a salesman for a company. He who brings in the most business gets the largest check. And of course it helps to be popular with the staff and with the folks in charge. It's a famous saying in our day, and I've seen it in my career. It's not who, what you know, but who you know. Many times people get the promotions who don't deserve them, but they're the friends of the bosses or the relatives of the bosses. God does not operate that way. The measure of the reward is told to us. It's the measure of labor. Notice what he says. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's the way it ought to be. And in the kingdom of God, that's the way it is. It's not according to how much people liked it. It's a good thing Pastor Tate is not running a popularity contact contest. It's not about popularity. He tells you the truth because that's his job. It's not according to the number of people saved. And that is also a comfort. And you might say, I, I think the Lord should reward the people with the biggest churches. There's a big problem with that idea. The people with the biggest churches aren't, they may be, I'm not saying they never are. Spurgeon had, had uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. That was, that was a mighty work of God. But notice in the text that Jesus, that Paul doesn't say, and the Holy Spirit doesn't say, that the pastor is rewarded by the number of people who are converted under his ministry. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. It's not according to the amount of the offerings. A lot of ministers think that way. A lot of men think that way. You know, I need to get a lot of people in here uh, I'm not too worried about how much they give. The more people you have, the bigger the offerings will be. And that's what they're laboring for. It's unfaithful. It's carnal. It's not in contrast to what somebody else did. Thankfully, I'm, I'm very thankful that I don't have to be one. I don't need to be a Spurgeon. I don't need to be a Calvin. I don't need to be a Whitfield. I need to be Frank Delano doing his best. 
not in contrast to what somebody else did. That's why you don't make comparisons like that. You shouldn't. It's according to labor. The true measure of ministerial work is not numbers, it's not results, it's not offerings, it's labor. Labor will generally bear results. That's the interesting part about it. Get it straight. I mean, a minister is rewarded according to his labor. But uh, God has this uh, law. He says, whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to the flesh will fall from the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. Galatians 6, 9. So how do we measure a ministry? The way God does. It's by labor expended. It's what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 17. Those who labor in the word and in doctrine are worthy of double honor. Well, concluding, concluding, the concluding reinforcement, Paul and Apollos work together with God. That, that's what Paul says. Verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. We work together with God. Paul and Apollos cooperate with one another. Even more importantly, they cooperate with God himself. So, this is the concluding reinforcement. They plant in water, God accomplishes his purposes, and they work in uh, a kingdom. Paul ends up in verse 9. You, this is what they do, they work. You are God's field, God's building. And that's how God prospers his kingdom. He builds his building. Christians belong to God. It's very interesting to see Paul's vocabulary change here. Uh, he, I, I didn't notice it right away. But in the first four verses here of chapter 3, he doesn't mention God once. Very interesting. It's not there. See? Read through that text, look down from verses 1 through 4. Christ he mentions. But now, starting from verse 5, he mentions God several times. In fact, it's, it's, it's terribly emphatic. He says, The Lord gave opportunity, verse 5. God causes the growth, verse 7. We are, you are God's fellow workers, God's fielding, God's, God's uh, field, God's building, you see. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to set a God-centered mindset into the people of God. Dominance. Okay. So, we've looked at these parts of the, this, this little section with identities, with evaluations. Finally, now, we come down to the application. Here's my question. It's a question, it's a statement. Do you really believe this? Do you believe what God by the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write? 
God is the one who's doing the work. It's God's work. He's appointed ministers. They're under his authority. They, they work under his rule. And God gives. God gives the increase. The work is God's. So we need to look to God. We need to really look to God. <laughs> you know, it's easy, it's easy to say the words, God's the one doing the work, God's giving. It's another thing to cry to God that He would bless the labors and He would give the increase. It's not just talk, brethren, it's the very way that we relate to God and the hopes that we have for the progress of God's work. We look to him, we fear him, we pray to him for his blessing. Now, if men are not being saved, it's not necessarily because people aren't doing their work. God uses men. We need to be about our God-given responsibilities, but God causes the increase and the growth. We need to have that perspective that needs to be very real. And it needs to be something that we feel in the way that we pray. Do you believe that? Secondly, don't look only at men. You need to look to the Lord. There is a proper regard for ministers. Now, Paul, Paul believes that. Paul declares that. Not necessarily right here. This is not his point. His point now is that about how foolish and sinful divisions are centered around men. There is a proper regard for faithful ministers. Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians that they are to esteem those who labor over them and have charge over them in the Lord to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Not for their results' sake, not for their success's sake, but for their work's sake. Esteem them highly, Paul says. Love them for what they do for you. I'll just say this. If you love your minister, you love the man who labors for you, You'll hear some of the things that are being said to you about being here. You know, if, you, if you're not here because you've been in the hospital, that's one thing, right? That's one thing. But if you just didn't feel like getting out of bed one morning and you say, you know what? I've been working hard. I've been pretty tired lately. I think I'm going to sleep in today. Don't do that. You're not telling your pastor how much you love him when you're not here for no good reason. So you esteem him very highly in love for his work's sake and then you have to be there for the work's sake, right? And then Galatians 4.15, Paul asked the Corinthian, not sorry, the Galatian Christians he's writing to, he says, where is that sense of blessing that you had? I bear you witness that if you could have, you would have taken out your eyes and given them to me. Do you remember a time when you came 
and you became in love with the truth of God preached faithfully to you each week, and you couldn't wait. You couldn't wait. The end of the Lord's Day, well, I'm so sad. I got to go back to work tomorrow among those filthy people I have to work with. And now I have to wait till Tuesday and get some more of the Word of God from my pastor. And I have to work till the next, maybe a Saturday or Sunday. Where's that sense of blessing? I know I, I got to cut back a little bit on my time here, but I do want to tell you, I've been to places where there was such a sense of expectancy when the Lord's Day came around. People were there early, 15, 20 minutes early, waiting, praying. And when the pastor came, yeah, we, we, we esteemed him very highly in love. But we had a sense of expectancy. There was a sense of blessing. God's going to meet with us. God's going to talk to us. God's going to address us. He'll deal with us. Where's that sense of blessing now? Where is it? Well, again, it's all about God. We mustn't have wrong attitudes towards our towards God's servants. No excuse to despise them. Consider God's minister as God's servant, chosen by God, close to God, God's fellow worker, officially. <laughs> and so you need to esteem and be here. Soak up the word of God. And remember that all your blessings you owe to the living God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. You owe that. I don't care who you are. I don't care. I do care whether you're saved or unsaved. But for my point is, uh, you owe God your faith. You, you should believe in God. He gives you everything. Life Breath, everything. Happiness, you get you get a you get a nice ice cream cone that takes you out for for ice cream sometime, and you get your favorite ice cream cone. And you say thank you, Daddy. That was so nice of you. How about the living God who gives you everything you are and everything you had and offers you the gospel? Therefore, you ought to give yourself up to God. And faith in Jesus Christ. Seek the forgiveness of your sins and the blessings of his goodness. Let's, let's pray. Amen. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the wonderful word of God. How many things we get to see that are hidden from the world. They, they, they get your crumbs, they get money, and they get nice vacations, and they get beautiful cars and then they get eternal torment in hell but you have offered us your son and given us all the good things that we receive so receive our thanks and please do bless the things that have been declared today from your holy word use them for the good of the brethren here and the good of the unconverted here at City View Baptist Church and increase your kingdom 
Give the growth, Lord. Give what only you can give. We ask through Jesus our Lord. Amen.